stories as fables with no relevance today. But God's past power never passed away. The great I am still is. The heavens and the earth are His. He's the merciful, almighty, forever holy. In everything we must remember Thee. seek to make things right for stranded souls in darkness who long to see the light or for those who tread a troubled road and feel they can't go on there's a promise we can stand upon the great stand in every test I could lose it all and still be blessed I'm a sinner saved by grace because
once passed But there's a place the gloom of death can't enter And someday it will be my home at last When you pass me to that land of no If that didn't bless you, your blesser is broke. Wasn't that a great song? Praise the Lord, and so well done. Thank you all, everyone involved. The book of Acts, chapter 27. The subject today, Christian optimism. Acts 27. Acts chapter 27. I figured you might need this in the middle of the summer. Actually... I thought of this title, Christian Optimism. But honestly, 
things are so bad, I don't know if it'll do any good to preach it. <laughs> Some of y'all, you discourage me. I come up with a really good one and it doesn't do a thing in the world for you. There's gotta be a thousand stories about optimists. A lady had a son in prison. He was sentenced for 40 years. And the son was released. She was telling her neighbor that her son was going to be released one year early for good behavior. And the neighbor said, it must be wonderful to have such a good son. <laughs> That's an optimist, isn't it? And then we've all heard the one about the optimist who has fallen from the 10th story window, but somebody heard him say as he passed the second floor. So far, so good. <laughs> That's an optimist. And then there was the optimistic old man who was buying shoes. He was 99 years old. And he said to the clerk who was showing him a pair of shoes, I don't think this leather's going to last. And the clerk said, oh man, I'm gonna tell you something, that leather's gonna be here long after you're gone. And he said, uh, that's where you're wrong, Sonny. He said, statistics say fewer people die after 99 than any year before. <laughs> that's optimism, isn't it? <clears throat> then there were the two inmates and they were talking to each other and one said, how are you doing? He said, not well, I'm going to be electrocuted tomorrow. And his friend said, trying to be positive and upbeat, said, well, more power to you. <laughs> optimist. Well, Paul was an optimist. He was a Christian optimist. Open your Bible in Acts 27 and stand with me, if you will, please. And let's read from God's word this morning. And we're not going to read the whole story. Let me kind of set the story up for you, if I may, a little bit. Paul is a prisoner and he's on his way to Rome. He's going there because he has appealed his case to Caesar, and uh, he's going to have an audience with the emperor himself in time. And so as he is on his way, they put him on a ship, and he goes from one port to another. He changes uh, ships a couple of times, as they did in those days. And then he gets on this ship for the last leg of the trip. And as he does... They look out and a storm is brewing. It's the time of year when they had storms in the Mediterranean, just like the time of year here. We have storms and we're in the hurricane season right now. And so the apostle is aware that there's bad times coming up. And let's read about it here in Acts chapter 27, verse 14. Not, not long after there arose against it, against the ship, a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. Now, they named their hurricanes just like we do today, Eurocladon. And when the ship was caught in the storm and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And down in verse number 17, when they had taken up, they used helps. They actually would put ropes around the ship, undergirding the ship, and to keep those wooden bracings to support them, they would put big ropes around it and tie them very tightly for additional support. And then we go down to verse 18. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. 
And so they began to throw the cargo overboard. And the third day, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. What a phrase. Underline that in my Bible. People with no hope. All hope that we should be saved was taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them. And he said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. Now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me, howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. And I'll break off the reading there. And thank you, and you may be seated. Before the passage that I've read back in verse number 10, Paul had warned the men that they should not leave the port, that they were in fact going to run into trouble if they sailed. Go back to chapter 27 and verse 10. He said, sirs, I perceive that this voyage, voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion decided he was, going to go, he was going to go ahead and sail anyhow. He didn't listen to Paul's counsel, and they ran into this great storm. They threw all the cargo, everything that they could spare overboard just to try to save the lives. And it was a horrible, horrible storm. And in verse 20, I pointed out the phrase, the captain and the crew and everybody on board except the apostle Paul had lost all hope that we should be saved. All hope had been taken away, a time of no hope. And then in verse number 25, note with me, that in spite of everybody losing hope but him, Paul is a Christian optimist. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer. I believe, God, that it shall be even as it was told me. So Paul is optimistic here, Christian optimism. Now, what does a Christian optimist base his or her hope upon? Because just to have hope means nothing unless there's some foundation, some substance, some basis for your hope. We'll go back to verse number 23. Here's the source, the basis, the foundation of Paul's hope. There stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. And he said, Paul, don't fear. You're going to be brought before Caesar. You're going to get to Rome eventually. And God has given you all of them that sail with you. Nobody's going to die in this storm. So you go on board the ship and you tell them that. And so the basis of his hope was the message that he had received from the angel of Almighty God. The basis of his hope, let me say it again, was based upon the word of God delivered to him 
through this angel. And however, I want to say about optimism today that Christian optimism is different from humanistic optimism where people just hope things are going to turn out right, who just wish for the best. Because in verse 26, you see, Paul said, even though we're all going to live and I'm going to get to Caesar from my hearing, we are going to wreck, we're going to have a shipwreck, and we're going to be cast upon a certain island. Now, I won't go into all the story after that. Paul was bitten by a very extremely poisonous snake at that point, and God miraculously healed him and delivered him. But they eventually get him to Rome. Paul makes it all the way through. But here's what I want to say about verse 26. Though Paul was optimistic, his optimism was tempered by reality. And as Christian optimists today, we are optimistic about the future. We're not in despair as God's people, but our optimism is not without substance. Our optimism has a basis. Our optimism is tempered by reality. Paul said, we're gonna be cast upon an island and there's gonna be some great pain and some great problems ahead of us, but we are going to get through them. Now, this is not the only place I see Paul speaking as a Christian optimist. I see him in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, where he says, if God be for us, then who can be against us? What a great phrase. What a powerful, positive affirmation. If God is for me, who could be against me? Or what difference does it make if someone else is against me? And then in chapter 8 and verse 37 of Romans again, Paul says, nay, in all these things, that these things are 17 different perils and things that opposed him, 17 different great difficulties that he's going through. And he said, after he lists those 17, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. God's people are more than conquerors. Say today with me, I am more than a conqueror. Say it out loud. I am more than a conqueror. That's what the Bible teaches us, does it not? Certainly it does. Now, is Paul just a cheerleader here? He's not just a cheerleader. He is very realistically looking at life, but he sees hope always. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you may want to turn with me there, and let me show you a couple of verses, uh, a couple of additional thoughts along the line that Paul here is the Christian optimist. And here's what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse number 8, very realistically, we are troubled on every side. Can anybody say, I'm troubled on every side? I'll bet you can. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken of God in our persecution. We are cast down, but we're not destroyed. We're not going around saying, yip, 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 hooray. We've got a world of problems, but you know what? We are not cast down. We're not defeated. We understand that that's reality, and we know that we're going to prevail. In verse number 16 of 2 Corinthians 4, for which cause we faint not, 
But though our outward man perish, the natural human part of us, yet the inward man, our soul, our salvation, is renewed day by day for our light affliction, whatever it is you're going through this morning, is but for a moment, and it is working for us a far more and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, the spiritual world, the spiritual dimension, the things that we can see with our physical eyes are temporal, temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul had this long outlook, this eternal perspective rather than just a temporal perspective. I'm telling you, my friends, if we're living for this life and this life only, there's not a lot of hope. But if we're living for eternity, I'll tell you, there's all the hope that God's word can give to us, and there's a lot of it there. Now, is Paul just a cheerleader? Is, is he just trying to make us feel better in our bad circumstances? Am I just preaching to you today a feel-good message as we sometimes hear people describe certain preachers? They're just a feel-good preacher. Nobody's ever accused me of that, I don't think. But at any rate, is, is that what we're doing? Are we just, am I just a cheerleader today trying to get people to say, yip, yip, hooray, everything's going to be okay, everything's fine. Is that our intention today? Absolutely not. This is more than pie in the sky that Paul is talking about here. This is more than wishful thinking. You've heard people referred to as a Pollyannish person. Pollyanna was the name of a novel that was written in 1913. And in that, the author describes a girl who is unrealistically optimistic about everything. She, her whole life is built around this thing she calls the glad game, the glad game. I've met people who live in the world of the glad game. They are always trying to be optimistic in an unrealistic, superficial way. Well, Pollyanna was like that. And uh, everything, every circumstance of life, it was over, you know, there's going to be something good in everything. And so that name Pollyanna now has become sort of the word that's used to describe people who are unrealistically optimistic. That's not Christian optimism as expressed by the Apostle Paul here, because our hope, my optimism, my anticipation of the future is not based on just trying to see something good in every bad thing that happens. My optimism is a confident expectation it's based on God's word, not on feeling. Not some vague feeling that everything's going to be all right. No, that won't do it. Everything may not be all right. But a Christian optimist understands that we have a hope. We have optimism. And that hope is based on a confident expectation. Now think of those two words, a confident expectation that God is in fact going to do what he promised to do in his word. So while everyone around him has lost hope, Paul said, last night, 
God wanted to give me hope based on something. And he sent his angel to me, and the angel came and spoke to me, and the angel told me, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome based then upon the word of God, I have hope. The ship is going to make it. It may crash, but, or rather we are going to make it. The ship may crash. There's going to be a shipwreck. We're going to be tossed upon this island. We're going to have great difficulties, but in spite of the difficulties, we will make it. I just got to thinking about that recently and made me some notes as I do constantly. I just live in this sermonic world, I guess, as a preacher now. And every time I have a good thought, which is fairly rare, I try to write it down lest I forget it. And I wrote down Christian optimism when I was looking at this passage of Scripture. And I thought, boy, we need a little dose of that. Don't we live in pessimistic times? I even heard Rush Limbaugh the other day. I was in my car, and he was on the radio. And he said, I quit listening to the news because it makes me feel bad, drains me. And I thought, you know what? I probably ought to do that as well. I don't care if it's liberal or conservative. I get mad at it. And I often wanted to throw the proverbial shoe through the front of the TV and just say, shut up, haven't you? I just get overwhelmed by the bad news that is out there. And today, you know, North Korea is threatening to rain down nuclear weapons on the U.S. and turn us into a big sender and the advocates of climate change make me feel guilty for driving a car if they could. And the man who's supposed to be the smartest man in the world, Stephen Hawking, said, if we don't do something about climate change right now, it's, the earth is going to be 400 degrees by the year so-and-so and so-and-so. It's going to be as hot as Venus. You know what I thought? Stephen, you don't know half what you're talking about. One of, these earth, one of these days, it's going to be 4,000 degrees, buddy. But it won't be brought on by me driving a car. It'll be brought on by God's judgments, won't it? So we know the future. So let me today give you three bases for a Christian optimism. Three reasons that you and I can have optimism and hope. Now, it's not, it's not Pollyannish optimism. It's not trying to see something good in everything that happens. No, it's optimism tempered by our understanding of reality and the world around us as revealed by the Scriptures, the Holy Word of God. Number one, I can have hope today and optimism because God is with me. God is with me. And that, that's, that's a simple statement. Everybody here knew that, but don't we often need to be reminded Charles Spurgeon said, I repeat my sermons. I just give them different titles. He said, because when you boil it all down, we need to be reminded more than we need to learn new things often. And today, I'm not here to tell you something brand new. God is with us. If you're a believer, if you come to this church, you know that, don't you? But you know, we need to be reminded of it in these times of extreme pessimism in which we're living over and over, the Bible uses the term, he's with us. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he goes through all that. And then it says, 
Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art, what? With me. Even unto death, the Lord is present. He's with us. God is with us. In, at the end of the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus Christ said what? And lo, I am with you. How long? To the end of the world, to the end of the age. There'll never come a time when I'm not with my people. Lo, I am with you. Hebrews church, chapter number 13. I will never leave you or forsake you. No matter where you go or what circumstance you're in, we have God's word. He will be with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. God has promised his people that he will supply their needs. You have the gloomers and the doomers who are everywhere present today, the economic prognosticators, and they say, you better buy gold and silver because the economy is going to crash. And then you have another group of people saying, no, the stock market went back up today, and you feel uncertain. Who's right? Who's telling me the truth? Well, I don't know what the economy is going to do. I don't know if the stock market will be zero or million next year. I do know this. I know what Jesus taught us. Go to Matthew chapter 6. When you get concerned about your provision in life, is God going to take care of me? Is God going to provide for me? Jesus spoke a lot about this. And he wants Bill Monroe to think this way in this age of economic pessimism he wants me to remember that he has promised to supply my needs. Matthew 6 and 25. I say unto you, Jesus said, take no thought. He means by that, don't worry. Don't, don't, don't focus on this. For your life, what you will eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on, that would be for your health and your clothing. Is not your life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air. Look at the birds. They don't sow a crop, and neither do they go out and reap a harvest, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. And then here's the question. Am I not more valuable to him than a bird, than a sparrow? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to your stature? Why take thought for your raiment, your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not. They didn't sit down and buy a coat or a dress. Neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed or arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, very short-lived, Will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Take no thought whatever what we shall eat or what we shall drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed. For after all these things do the Gentiles, the pagans, the worldly people think. They spend their life thinking about material things. But your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, the spiritual life, your own soul and being where you need to be with the Lord. Seek first that and his righteousness, and then all these things, God says, shall be added unto you. And take no thought for the tomorrow. The morrow will take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day 
meaning all the problems that you need to worry about are the problems of today. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. God is with us. He's promised to supply our needs. And we've seen that. There are thousands of illustrations of that that I've observed through the years, right in the lives of you people. God is with us and he will supply. God is with us and he will protect us. He will protect us. I was reading recently of the story of Exodus and how the people must have felt. They look behind them as the army of Pharaoh. They look in front of them, there's the Red Sea. They're absolutely trapped. Pharaoh's army is well armed with his chariots and spears and shields and everything that warfare had in those days. And they don't have a single thing to protect themselves. They've been slaves for 400 years. And before them, the sea, behind them, the greatest army in the world. And what happens? God, in order to protect his people and keep his word that he's going to deliver them, he opens up the sea. He didn't deliver them from the Red Sea. He didn't take them over the Red Sea. He didn't make the Red Sea disappear. He took them through the Red Sea. He didn't remove the problem. He took them through the problem. You get it? Don't ask God to take away all your problems. Those problems are sent for reasons. But ask him to give you grace and strength and mercy to go through the problem. Daniel and his friends Bow down and worship that beast. No, we're not going to do it. If you don't do it, we're going to put you in the fiery furnace. Okay, if we have to go to the furnace, we will. God didn't take them around the furnace and over the furnace and under the furnace. He took them where? In the furnace. But in the furnace, he looks and what does he see? The king. He sees a fourth man. There's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and one likened to the Son of God, Jesus himself came and stood in the fires with them through the furnace. God said, I will be with you. He will be with you, ladies and gentlemen. He's with, a, he's with his people to hear and answer their prayer. Jeremiah 33 and 3, call upon the name of the Lord, and he will hear you, and he'll show you great things, great and mighty things. Does God hear and answer prayer? Absolutely. You know, this week, it was, it was shown to me so vividly that God hears and answers prayer, but he doesn't do it in a way that we always wanted and expected. So last Sunday morning, I stood here and I talked about my dear friend, Jimmy Lee. Jimmy had been a member of this church for almost 30 years. Jimmy was a deacon. He was a uh, finance committee member. Well, we trusted him to handle our money. Jimmy was a soul winner. He witnessed to everyone. I made the statement at his funeral. He owned 1,300 theological volumes. He was qualified to pastor a church. Theologically speaking, he was the best informed theologian of anybody I've ever pastored, any layperson I've ever pastored. He knew the word of God. He knew doctrine and he understood it. And then he had been an honorable uh, mention all-American football player at the, at the Citadel. And so when we started a football team, 
Jimmy Lee's out there helping us. He played so many roles and wore so many hats. And then he was stricken with cancer. Terrible. The doctor, the oncologist in Charleston said it's the worst case he had seen. It was a textbook thing. They were going to write notes on it because he had never seen this particular type of lymphoma uh, revealed in the particular manner that it was and so on. And he was, I visited him and it was awful. It was awful. And I stood here and I told you all that and I said, what? You must pray. He's very low. He's, he's, he's not going to make it if we don't pray. And I knelt down as I always do and I prayed for Jimmy Lee and, I, and I'm sure you were praying with me. Thousands of prayers were being lifted up for Jimmy Lee. Well, I didn't know this, but Melissa told me later, they had the iPad on and they were watching the live stream of the church service. And she heard me make the appeal for her daddy, but he was very, very low. And I kneel down and I say, God, please, if it be thy will, touch his body. A sincere prayer from me. And I know you were doing the same. Do you know what? Melissa said it was so strange. He quit breathing. My daddy died while y'all were praying for him. And somebody says, well, you didn't, he didn't answer that prayer. Oh, you're wrong. He healed him. He healed him. Amen. But he didn't do it in a way that we wanted to die. An interesting thing, Jimmy had written this book, and in it, he entered the introduction, he had made the statement about his mother. He said, I dedicate this book to my mother, who God healed of cancer on such and such a date when he took her home to heaven before us. See, he recognized God had healed his mother. Someday he's going to heal all of us. He's going to take us to that place where there's no more sickness. But see, we're so involved in, in, in life. We, it's hard to break out and get on a spiritual note and see that. But God will be with you. He was with Jimmy. He is with us to supply our needs. He is with us to protect us like he did Daniel and the three in the furnace. He's with us to hear and answer our prayers, not always in the way we want them, but he's going to do what is best for me in the long run from an eternal perspective. He's going to do that every time. What is the basis for Christian optimism? God's with us. Number two is Jesus is coming again. I'm optimistic that Jesus is coming again. Do I hear an amen from this church? Ought to be knocked over by amens on that. The times we're living in. You really believe that Jesus is coming again? Do you believe that when he said, I will come again, that he actually literally meant that? But preacher, it's been 2,100 years, over 2,000 years. I understand that. It had been that long the first time. In the Old Testament, how long did they look for a Messiah before he came? Do you know your New Testament says, write this down somewhere, 318 times Jesus is returning to this earth. 318 times. Man, either 
Jesus is coming again or God has lied to us 318 times. You don't believe that, do you? No. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Let me tell you why I believe Jesus is coming. And, uh, you know, even at my advanced age, as I walk around on my walker and with my trembling hands here, I want you to know even at this advanced age, I still believe I might see the Lord's return. I think we could be that close. Now, I don't know that for sure, but I'm sure not signing off. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's the second most important prophetic passage in the New Testament. And I know I want you to listen to what he says. This is a passage that is just full of signs where he says, now this is a basis for you to believe that I'm coming when you see all these things begin to pass. And so go to verse 33 first. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, circle the word all, it's not when you see one of these things happening here and another one happening here and another one over here. It's when you see all of these things happening simultaneously. All of them are happening at the same time. When you see that, you know it's near, even at the door. Now, let's backtrack and look at what he says those signs are that will be happening simultaneously. Matthew 24, verse 5. Many will come in my name saying, I'm Christ, and will deceive many. So there'll be these false claims of being Christ and God and so on. Go to verse 11, closely tied to it, and there will be many false prophets who will rise and they shall deceive many. Both verses end with, they shall deceive you or deceive many. So the first sign is false religion, false claims of Jesus Christ, false prophets. Go to verse six. It's, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Anybody been watching the news this week? I don't need to even explain that, do I? Except to say, see that you be not troubled. Don't give up hope. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not near. And in verse 7, simultaneous international conflict and natural disasters. Nation will rise against nation. North Korea against America. India against Pakistan. ISIS against the rest of the world. Nations shall rise or nations shall rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be famines, the horn of Africa. There will be pestilences, strange diseases. There will be earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Verse nine, there will be persecution of Christians. They will deliver you up to be afflicted and kill you. And you will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Do you realize today that in Saudi Arabia, that in Jordan, that in Iraq, that in Iran, that in all that Middle Eastern part of the world, there are virtually zero Christians left, that ISIS and the radicals have killed thousands of people. We don't, the, the, the Western news, all they're talking about is Donald Trump and Russia. They're not even covering the real news of the world. What is happening over there to God's people is unbelievable. They're dying by the thousands. 
the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 12, and iniquity shall abound, meaning that sin will enlarge. Sin will just be coming like a tidal wave. And the love of many will wax cold. American Christianity. People who used to really love and serve God and were fervent and their hearts were on fire for Jesus. And they don't even go to church regularly now. The great apostasy, the falling away. And it's inexplicable. Why would this happen at this time in history like it's done? Well, it's part of the plan. And then in verse number 32, the big one of all, learn a parable, the fig tree. The fig tree is Israel. And when his branch is yet tender and he putteth forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. And so Israel is now returned to her ancient homeland after 2,000 years. The greatest single prophetic fulfillment in modern-day history, the nation of Israel back in her land, along with all those other signs. Now, what has that got to do with Christian optimism? Go to Titus chapter 2.13. I could quote this, but I, I just like for you to turn in your Bible. I like for you to f- mark these things and read them and see them with your eyes as well as hearing me talk about them. I've told you Jesus is coming again. It's a basis for Christian hope. And I've given you the signs that say it could be any moment. I don't know when he's coming. It might be 100 years, but it might be today. And in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, listen to how the Scripture references the Lord's return. It calls it what? The blessed hope. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. The hope that blesses me. The hope that blesses your heart. The hope that I build my optimism about the future upon. Jesus Christ will come back to the earth. And third and lastly, the door of salvation is still open. I'm optimistic. I have hope for the future because the door of salvation is still open today. The Bible says it so many times and in so many different ways. For example, Romans 10 and 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank God I've had the opportunity hundreds of times to sit down with people through my life now and turn that testament around backwards and let them put my finger on verse 13 and say, read that. Whosoever, does that mean you? Shall call. What does it mean to call? Just to ask him. Upon the name of the Lord, understanding that he died for your sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day. And then the Bible says, might be saved. Huh? And they always say, no, 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 preacher, you read it wrong. What does it say? Hope to be saved, maybe saved, guess I'm saved. No, will be saved. The certainty of salvation when people call upon the name of the Lord and trust Him. We live in a sad time intellectually. Almost none of the great intellectuals of our day are Christians. In the late 20th and the 21st century, 
Western man and actually people from around the world as well, we bought into something called secularism, that there's no God, or if there is a God, he's inconsequential. And then it turned into full-blown atheism. We're reading polls today that say that up to 20% of the millennials don't even believe there's a God. They've repudiated the faith of their fathers. And there's existentialism, which teaches people basically live for the moment. Whatever there is in life worthy of anything, just go ahead and experience it. Just go on and pop your cork and live your life. And then we have hedonism or hedonism and all-out pursuit of pleasure and material things, making that the goal of life. We have all these different things. And so many Christians are caught up in those things. They're not seeking first the kingdom of God. They, They may be believers, but they are tainted by the philosophies of the world around them. But are people happier in 2017 than they were in 1817? I don't think they are. All the thinkers and people who write and who wrote then would tell me that there's a despair about modern man. Francis Schaeffer wrote 20 books probably on the despair that modern man faces. That when they pillow their head at night, these thinkers, brilliant people, highly educated people, geniuses in their field, but spiritually blind, when they pillow their head, they're unhappy people. There's no hope. They have no optimism. Their whole idea is live for the moment, live for right now, get whatever pleasure you can out of it. But after they've tried that and tried that and tried that, they're still not happy. They're so empty. Every few weeks, some celebrity takes his life, some Hollywood star, some rock musician, or somebody you would think has everything to live for. They take their life. Why? Despair. When they get alone at night by themselves, there's no hope because they bought into Satan's lie. They ignored the God who made them. Bertrand Russell, Russell, Bertrand Russell was one of those. He's dead now. He died back in the 60s or 70s. Brilliant, brilliant intellectual. Mathematician, social critic, teacher, writer, atheist, hater of Christianity. Used to come and take his vacations at Pauly's Island and down there, Debedu, in that area. World famous. He was 90 years old and he wrote his own autobiography. And I haven't read it all, but I've read sketches of it. And it absolutely reveals the hopelessness of atheism and unbelief and living without Christ. In a letter to one of his friends, a lady friend of many years, He was talking about how much he valued his friendship with her. And now they were both very, very old, and they knew the end was near. Listen to words that just are cloaked with despair. 
What else is there other than our friendship to make life tolerable? We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying to the night in the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it is the voice of one groaning, and in a moment the silence returns. The world seems to me quite dreadful. The unhappiness of many people is very great. I often wonder how they endure it. To know people well is to know their tragedy. It is usually the central thing about which their lives are built. And I suppose that if they did not live most of the time in the things of the moment, they would not even be able to go on at all. End of quote. How dark, how hopeless. Contrast that with the words of J.C. Penney. He started the department store chain with the help of his father. He called it the Golden Rule Company, and he operated by the Golden Rule because he was a Christian. And the 1929 crash came, and he lost everything that he had. He was totally bankrupt. People were filing lawsuits against him. They were angry at him because they had lost their jobs. They had lost money in his stock and now being bankrupt. Some of them were out of work. And they began to attack him, and he became bitter. You'd almost say justifiably so that everybody was against him now when he was down. He couldn't sleep at night. He was nervous and agitated. He just couldn't even get a night's sleep. And finally, he had what we would probably call a nervous breakdown. They sent him to the Kellogg Sanitarium, a very famous hospital in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. He said, the stress on me was so great, I felt like I was dying. I felt like I couldn't even get a breath. I would suck in the air, and it didn't satisfy me. I was so stressed out. And he said, one night I didn't sleep at all. I actually thought I was dying. And he said, the morning light came, and after an hour or two, I put on my bathrobe and my slippers, and I shuffled down the hall. That was his word. Not even wanting to live. And I heard something, sounded like music, sounded like a choir. So I followed the music down the corridor, and there was a choir singing. I'd grown up in church, in a Christian home. I was saved. I knew God, but right now it didn't seem to matter. And the choir was singing, and I heard the words, Be not dismayed, whate'er be tied. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you through every day and all the way. God will take care of you. He said, I stood in the door. It was beautiful. I listened. Tears flowed down my cheeks. My heart was just gushing. It was overflowing. God had spoken to me. And he said, a man stood up who I guess was a preacher. He opened a Bible. His text was Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come and take my yoke upon me, for my burden is easy and light. And he said, that day I knelt down. He said, it was like God had opened up a gusher in my heart. And I wept and I prayed. I confessed my sin of worry. And he said, 
there was this sense of release and this sense of peace came over me. He went back to work. And before he died, the J.C. Penney chain was greater than it had ever been. God heard him. God blessed him. God used him. Preacher, is it that simple? Well, yes, <laughs> it is. And it's, there are thousands of people, millions that would testify when your heart is open and broken to God and you humble yourself and you pray, God will take care of you. Stand to your feet with me if you will in prayer, please.